The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. My name is Susan, and uh, welcome everyone. And um, I just want to give a little bow to all of you for that you're here, that you're here, that you're not following whatever distractions and entertainments and all kinds of um, just ways to distract ourselves out there. You're here. You're here. And um, that's significant. Also uh, about to the Buddha um, for his teachings, these teachings, the Dharma. So, again, you're, you're here to study your own mind as we were just sitting and watching, um, observing, bringing our awareness to what's going on with us. And, and our minds, you know, they cause us so much suffering. <laughs> um, the first two verses of the Dhammapada, which is, um, if you don't know, it's kind of a, a, a poetic, concise uh, collection of the Buddha's teachings. And the first two verses um, go like this. All experience is led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering will follow, as the wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness will follow like a never-departing shadow. So when the Buddha um, gathered um, his followers, um, disciples, nuns, and monks, and lay people all together sometimes, often he would uh, address them as, O nobly born. Um, O nobly born. So, I mean, this kind of addresses the fact that to have a human birth, first of all, is significant. It's significant. Right there is worthy of honoring. Oh, nobly born. And what are the pursuits of the noble ones? Well, as the Buddha said, to have the intention to abandon unskillful qualities that have arisen in the mind, to guard against the further arising of unskillful qualities, to encourage the arising of skillful qualities, and then to maintain the skillful qualities that have arisen. So why is this the pursuit of the noble ones? Well, because this is really, um, as we work with our own minds, this is how those forces within the mind, greed and hatred, delusion, this is how they are uprooted through this practice. So this, this is the path um, that leads to the end of suffering. So what I wanted to talk about, one of the things that I wanted to talk about tonight is relationship, um, being in relationship to um, our experience and how we are in relationship with our experience. I mean, often we cannot control what is happening, what our experience is, but if we're mindful, um, we can control our relationship to what is happening. Um, In recent times, um, as my awareness has developed, I've really, uh, I've started to see the thoughts the mental activities of my mind is kind of a movie. <laughs> and and I, I've begun to be able to see very clearly thoughts that are rooted in self-preoccupation, my own wantings, my, um, my own petty resentments, my moments of ill will. And I also can see clearly my relationship with those qualities in my own mind. First of all, I see my wish that they weren't there. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't, I don't ignore them. I really, and I, I, I kind of forgive myself for having them because really 
They're part of being human. And then the other uh, aspect that has come in, in recent years is that I really see a, I have a choice. I have a choice of, of acting on these um, petty resentments, these feelings of ill will. I have a choice or I can abandon them. And over the years of my um, practice, um, I can really see what will follow acting on these kinds of qualities of the mind. They're suffering, suffering. So this is what makes letting them go a lot easier. And this is really uh, a thrilling uh, feeling of a taste of freedom. And this is what the Buddha was talking about in terms of our liberation. And it's also um, good food for my uh, daily gratitude practice. I'm so grateful um, for this practice that has just lifted a boatload of suffering off my shoulders. And so this is why it's, it's the effort that we put into our practice um, is so worth it. And for those of you um, who are just beginning in, in practice, you may have just a few moments here and there of that feeling of just peacefulness, of of deep contentment. So um, I encourage you, keep going, keep going, because there'll be more and more of those. You know, the Buddha was sitting with a group of his disciples one day, and he, um, he, he picked up a little crumble of earth, and he handed it to one of his disciples. And he said, now... Um, Now, monks and nuns, look over there at that mountain. The mountain is like the suffering of those who who are not on this path of the Dharma. And the crumble of earth that you hold in your hand is like the suffering of those who are on this path, practicing the Dharma. And so, of course, the practice requires mindfulness and vigilance and effort. So I I told Maureen that I would introduce myself to all of you. Some of you I know already. Um, I have been away. Um, I have been um, practicing and studying with Gil since 1997. I was very involved in the um, purchase of this building and establishing our center way back in 2002. And, and then I, um, as, I um, as my practice deepened over the years, I got involved in um, chaplaincy work. I took the Sati Center year-long program that's given here, and I took the additional training that's necessary. And... Um, and I've actually been away working as a chaplain in Southern California for two years as part of um, a research project. So um, one of the things I thought I would share with you um, is a story. And this story um, is significant, very significant to me because it was the inspiration and the motivation, one of the things that really inspired me um, to get involved in this kind of work. And it, actually, I had plan to tell this story, um, I kind of started to thinking about this talk that I would be giving um, tonight a couple weeks ago. And then Gil actually told this very same story, because it's his story. Uh, he told it when I was on retreat with him. He told it last Monday night. I don't know, was anyone here to hear his story um, about the monastery, from his book, The Monastery Within, on Monday night? Did anyone hear that story? Okay, well, I'll tell it anyway, again. Good. Um, Well, the story goes like this. So, there's a monastery. And in the monastery, there is a a group of young monks and nuns who have just come in to the monastery. And they've been there for a few days. You know, just orienting. And so, the abbess, um, at the evening gathering, the abbess... um, um, 
tells them that um, in the next few days that they are going to be um, taking um, a pilgrimage and they're going to be visiting the um, most sacred sites, the most holy sites of Buddhism. And so the young monks and nuns kind of looked at each other, very excited about this because, um, you know, they've kind of been dealing with things like boredom, with restlessness, <laughs> with wondering why, why am I here? If, if any of you have been on retreat, you might f- be familiar with these kinds of um, thoughts and feelings. And, and so the next morning, <clears throat> they were told to meet at the gates of the monastery after breakfast. And so they did, and the abbess again met them, and, and um, they set off down the road. And the first, um, the first place that they came to um, was um, a home for um, elderly monks and nuns, for um, monks and nuns in their 80s, 90s, some in their 100s, who could no longer really fully care for themselves. And so the, the young monks and nuns were encouraged to sit with the, um, the people there and visit with them, which they did. So they spent the day and um, returned again to the monastery at the end of the day and were uh, asked to meet again at the gates in the morning for another pilgrimage. And so the next morning they set off again and this time they, they came to a hospital. And so they were asked to, um, again, spend the day visiting with the patients in the hospital and helping to care for them. And again, returned to the monastery, had their evening meal, and the next day, again, they were at the, at the, um, at the gates. And in my version of this story, um, they set off down the road, and, and um, in the distance off um, from this particular um, road they were following, they saw um, smokestacks, and they saw smoke. And so what they came to um, actually a crematorium, and so they saw um, you know, bodies being brought to the crematorium. They saw uh, families gathered, um, various rituals, that were taking place with, um, uh, with the, the bones, the, the little shards that are left after cremation. Um, there is a ritual that some people observe. The family members are asked to take a pair of chopsticks and, and take one little piece, one little remnant of their loved one. So um, that was the third most holy site. So what we're getting at, of course, is for, um, for us Buddhists, it's aging, illness, and death. Those are, um, as Andrea mentioned last week, those are three of the four heavenly messengers. Aging, illness, and death. This is what motivated the Buddha um, to search for a way to um, find some... Uh, some contentment, some way to be at ease with um, these harsh realities of of human life. Um, and uh, it, that story also is what inspired me to um, to enter into chaplaincy. And so, of course, then the, I don't want to leave out the fourth heavenly messenger. Um, this was the, the renunciate that the Buddha observed. Um, walking very serenely, undisturbed through the chaos and the violence and the upheaval of this world. And so the, this quality of inner peace that the Buddha observed in this um, renunciate, this is what he decided he wanted to find for himself. And so this is what motivated him to leave the luxuries of his palace um, as a very young man and to start his quest for um, some way to find some freedom or some way to be at ease in this human life. And so why are they called heavenly, heavenly messengers? Because, 
you know, when we acknowledge this um, reality of um, our own aging, our own illness, and our own impermanence, we are really encouraged, we are really motivated to search for a way to um, not only cope, not only to cope with these realities, but to really taste the kind of freedom that the Buddha found through this practice that he passed on to us. Um, to see how we can um, transform our relationship to this world, uh, this world of ours that is sometimes um, so painful, um, so full of grief and sorrow. How can we find this, this freedom that the Buddha spoke to in the midst of all that's happening to us and around us? And of course, the Buddha's, um, the Buddha's last words um, were, "All everything in this life is impermanent. Practice with diligence. So when we acknowledge um, the reality of aging, illness, and death, um, you know, some people... I think are afraid it would bring gloom and doom into their lives. But I think what happens for what happened for me and what happens for many people is that acknowledging these realities brings really an almost unbearable brightness, <laughs> brightness to our experience. I mean, each each moment becomes so beautiful, so precious. Each relationship with our loved ones and our friends. So precious, um, so beautiful. So I thought I would share a little bit um, from my work as a chaplain. I did um, I did work in a hospital um, in Oxnard, California. Um, I worked as the palliative care chaplain and also the ICU chaplain. Um, and so, you know, many people are kind of not sure, you know, what, what does a chaplain do? <laughs> I mean, what does a chaplain do? So I thought I would share um, some things that one of my colleagues, a list of things that one of my colleagues put together. Um, well, to, to just give a simple answer, um, a chaplain is, really provides spiritual and emotional support to people um, who are in crisis. And the chaplain um, is in hospitals that recognize the importance of chaplains. Not all hospitals have chaplains. Um, but the chaplain is an integral um, member of the, of the healthcare team, of the, the team, the doctor, the nurse, the social worker, the chaplain. And in this way, um, hospitals can recognize the importance of caring for the whole person. I mean, we are not just our bodies. We have hearts. We have minds. We have strong emotions. We have a spiritual dimension. And so this is the realm of the chaplain. Um, the chaplain can help people who are very sick or in crisis, can help them to um, kind of frame what's happening to them, empower them to um, find meaning um, in what's happening according to their own uh, values, beliefs, faith traditions. We always meet people on their ground. Um, we, we also, um, as a chaplain, I've often used um, meditation um, to help people with the stress and the anxiety that they're feeling um, with a life-threatening illness or with the life-threatening illness of a loved one. Families are cared for as well. The staff in the hospital is cared for. 
ethics, ethics, decisions um, that have to be made um, in the hospital sometimes involve ethics. Um, So the chaplain um, is often involved in that decision-making process. Um, Chaplains help with advanced health care directives. I hope all of you have an advanced health care directive. And if you don't know what that is and you want to know more, you can talk to me afterwards. But um, these days, the medical community um, can care for you infinitely. They have an infinite number of treatments. And so if you don't have a clear idea of how you want to be cared for, sometimes people get caught. Sometimes people get caught. And um, they start receiving things that they don't really benefit from and that aren't really um, what they would have chosen if they had taken the time to think about it beforehand. So, um, and sometimes a chaplain, all a chaplain can do is is really bring a peaceful presence into the room, a peaceful presence, someone um, that can be um, trusted to, um, so that people can really express um, the, the very painful emotions that they're feeling when um, serious illness is involved, anger, blame, themselves or others, grief, um, all kinds of very strong emotions. And the chaplain is there to encourage, encourage the expression. Because as we know, our practice is being with what is, no matter how painful it may be. So, um, knowing or, or, or um, sort of seeing the hospital as a sacred place really helped me um, in that as I, as I set foot, my, as, as, I, as I took my first step in the hospital, I, I, I reminded myself, this is sacred, this is sacred space. For a Buddhist, this is sacred space. And so that really um, encouraged um, mindfulness, vigilance, um, a wide open awareness so that I can really see clearly what's happening. And of course, the, an open heart, always an open heart. And as the chaplain, I want to go back to that word relationship. I'm always looking at relationships because all of us exist in relationship. Um, we have a relationship with um, our bodies, we have a relationship with our minds. We have a relationship with others. And when a life-threatening illness strikes, um, relationships tend to kind of shatter. And so the chaplain can... And this isn't necessarily a bad thing because people... Um, often don't wake up in life until something like this happens. That's the beauty of this practice that we do day to day, is that we are waking up day to day. But many people don't awaken until they're really struck by something, by something very painful, by their own, the realization of their own mortality. Because most people will avoid thinking about that. Avoid looking at the realities. So, working um, in the hospital also um, really um, nurtured a certain space for me. The space, um, really, of the what we call the sublime abidings, the Brahma Viharas. The Brahma Viharas are compassion, um, loving kindness, um, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And in my work, um, I found that I was often um, inhabiting that space. So it became, it's really my practice, 
My work is my practice. So compassion... um, Compassion is made up of, in, in Latin, of com and pati, which means um, to suffer with, to suffer with. So as a Buddhist, I'm very familiar with my own suffering. So um, it's easy, or not easy, but I feel somewhat at ease with other people's suffering. Um, so I can even take on some of that, some of their stress. Um, And also, the compassionate heart doesn't make any distinction between Christian, um, Jew, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu. Um, There's no distinction. So as a chaplain, um, I found myself um, offering prayers in Spanish to, to... Oxnard, um, which is where the hospital is, is a very uh, is an agricultural community, and there are many uh, farm workers there. And this hospital does not refuse anyone who comes there. So many of the patients um, were agricultural workers and Spanish speaking. Um, so I would I would share uh, and Roman Catholic, I might add, Roman Catholic or Christian, and um, so I had. Um, some prayers that I would share with them in Spanish. Um, caring for a Hindu woman, I brought um, the Bhagavad Gita for her, which she was overjoyed. Um, a Muslim family um, I came to know very well. Um, the elderly, the matriarch of the family was in the hospital for a month and just just declining and declining. It was very hard for the family, and she did die. And so um, at her death, I brought a poem um, from Rumi, one of Rumi's poems, which they, um, they, they knew in Farsi, but they'd never heard it in English before. So it was really, they were very touched by that. And of course, chanting, chanting for the Buddhist patients. We didn't have a lot of Buddhist patients, but but some. So this is really the work of the compassionate heart. And um, when I um, I was living in uh, Ventura, which is the neighboring town to Oxnard, and there's a temple there that I was going to, um, where uh, there was a actually three different communities were using this temple. There was a Vietnamese. Zen community, there was a Sri Lankan community, and then there were the Westerners, and each community had their their time in the temple. And so um, on my last night there, um, I, I gave a similar talk to this. They asked me to, to give a little talk, and so I was talking about compassion. And um, after I finished the talk, um, there were two monks there. Um, one was the, uh, the Bonte, who's the kind of the abbot, of the um, monastery, and then there was a younger monk who's s- still studying, and he um, he wanted to share with us the teaching that he had just received that day on compassion, um, and what what is the foundation of compassion, and he said um, the teaching that he was given was that. Um, um, it's around this the, the understanding that um, um, I, as I want to be happy, so do all others want to be happy. As I don't want as I don't want to be unhappy, so it is with all others who don't want to be unhappy. As I want to live, so it is with all others who want to live. As I don't want to die, so it is with all others who don't want to die. And so that was his teaching on compassion, the foundation of compassion. The second sublime abiding, kindness, loving kindness. Well, the Dalai Lama actually um, once said that his religion 
is kindness. His religion is kindness. And in the midst of all the technicalities, the, um, the machines and the, um, the tubes and everything in the ICU, really what I could, the most important thing I could do was to bring a warm and kind presence into um, the ICU. That was really appreciated. The ICU is a really hard place to be. So the fourth, the fourth one, um, empathetic joy, empathetic joy. You know, just um, feeling the happiness that others feel, and um, kind of losing, losing preoccupation with your own happiness and getting it from the happiness of others. And the fourth one, equanimity. Equanimity, the ability to stay balanced, to keep in balance no matter what is happening outside of you. Um, And of course, uh, working in the hospital um, as a chaplain, you have to stay balanced. You have to stay balanced. Um, As as the medical staff is rushing to do this, rushing to to do that, people are um, in crisis, Um, the chaplain has to maintain balance. So um, I use that practice of um, feeling my feet on the floor, feeling the breath in my my belly, Um, that, that mindfulness of the body and breath was what really helped me to, to keep in balance. And of course, the Buddha, the Buddha embodied boundless compassion, boundless, limitless compassion, limitless kindness, limitless joy, and limitless equanimity. So the sublime abidings, they, they have a way of coming more and more to the forefront as our practice deepens. And so how did the Buddha come to this boundless um, compassion? How did he come to this um, ability to be awake? By, um, by doing what we were just doing that first half hour or so, by I- examining investigating his experience, his relationship to his experience, looking deeply inside, investigating his relationship to his body and breath, his relationship to his mind, to his mental activities, his relationship to the outside world as he experienced it through his senses. So, what is your relationship? What is your relationship with this moment? What is your relationship to your body, to your breath, to your mental activities? Um, What is your relationship to the realities of human life? To the fact that all is impermanent? To... um, to your own aging, to your own um, um, body's illness, and to your eventual passing away. And what happens when you allow yourself to just drift, to go on autopilot? What happens when you um, allow your mind just to take over, just to take you along with it, with all of its whims and its wantings to, to, to allow your mind to be in the driver's seat, to take you around wherever it, wherever it pleases. What, what, what happens? What happens when you have that relationship? Just something to investigate, something to watch in your life. So I thought I would I would end with um, a, a poem from Rumi. 
There is a force within which gives you life. Seek that. In your body lies a priceless gem. Seek that. O wanderer, if you want to find the greatest treasure, don't look outside. Look inside and see that. So, um, I don't know if you have any questions or any comments or... The chaplaincy? Mm -hmm. Well, um, I actually, I went to Oxnard to work for two years. It was a two-year, because my position, my work there as a chaplain was also part of a a research project that we were doing, um, funded by a grant. Um, It was a research project that we were doing with seven other hospitals in Southern California. Um, And the research project was... Um, around gathering um, data from interviews that we would do with patients and families, just kind of um, taking um, um, t- taking in their responses around the the importance of spiritual care, the quality of the spiritual care they were getting, and what benefit and value did it have for them in terms of their experience in the hospital, and. The idea here is to gather this data from seven other hospitals, which which um, the um, the research um, company is in the process of doing now, just collecting it all, and um, so that we actually have something that we can present to the medical community at large. Kind of, we have to prove things to the medical community. I mean, they are evidence based, right? They are always evidence based. So. Um, but this was a two-year project. It was funded by this grant, so it just ended. So, um, so I'm back here, and um, I'm looking um, for another position. I, I want to continue. I, I really love the work. Is that available, the uh, summary of what they came up with? Yes, it will be. Um, I, I believe in the fall. I believe in the fall they, the research company is going to be... Um, you know, kind of presenting us with with the the final results. So, um, how do you think your doctor team? How how did they feel about you being on that team? The you mean the doctor and the, the nurse? Yeah, all, the, mm-hmm, all of those. People. Oh, okay. Well, um, that was actually um, a part of my um, my my guess mission. You could call it was to integrate myself with this team. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, there was a lot of, first of all, people weren't really clear on what I was doing. <laughs> um, you know, because they have a very different, they have a very different focus. Um, and most people, most of the, the other chaplains were all Christian. Most of the patients in the hospital were Christian. The other members of the team with one exception, the palliative MD w- was a Sikh. And she and I, uh, she knew uh, what I was, she knew what I was talking about from the beginning <laughs> when I would try to talk about, you know, let them know um, in language they could understand, you know, what, what is going on spiritually and emotionally for these people. Because they're focused on the body, mostly, and so I could I could bring in this whole other dimension to the person, um, so that they could begin to see the whole person, and we could we could we could put together a care plan that made um, sense for the whole person, based on that particular person's um, values, beliefs, um, and faith tradition. So. Um, yeah, so that was part of my mission, to integrate myself with that team and also with the ICU team. And it took a while. <laughs> it took a while, but people really began to get it. Was there resistance? Yeah, there was. There I was bet. resistance. There was. Um, and you had to just let that be then? 
I, I mm. did. I had to let it be, and I just had to let my work with the patients um, stand f- for itself. And, you know, so they, they, saw, they, they have powers of observation. They could see, they could see the difference. Um, they could see the importance. But it took, it took a while. It took a while for them to expand because they are so focused on, um, on um, you know, the, the, the treatments, the body, the, um, the instruments, the numbers, you know. <laughs> they are so focused on that. Um, so, yeah, just this, this broadening. Um, this, this is a really a movement now, um, making healthcare whole, realizing the importance um, in terms of the healing process for people's spiritual and emotional dimension to be cared for, for people's relationships with their families, um, because they, they those relationships. Um, really change when you're sick. So, um, so all of that is the realm of the chaplain. I have to commend you. I think that's a big challenge. It, it's, it, it is challenging, but yeah. um, uh, it's, I love the work. I just love it. it I have had so many, um, so many very deep encounters with other human beings, you know, you know, everything, all the trivia, the trivial things drop away when people are faced with their own mortality. Um, and so, you know, we just have these very, we can have these very deep connections. And um, they're just, it's very special work. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Maureen. I have a friend who's been in and out of the hospital recently and in uh, a rehab, you know, aftercare facility too. And it seems to me that that the people who care for those people need a chaplain just as much as the people who are ill. That there's so much suffering in the people who administered the care. It's how do you work with that? I mean, it's got to be something you noticed. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, the, the, that's part of the the chaplain's um, work is to support the staff in that way. Yeah, and to um, to help them express their grief, to give a, a space where they can um, where they can feel safe to do that, and to always, as the chaplain, I'm always looking for. I believe that we all have the inner resources to meet serious illness um, and death. Um, but we're all different, you know, so I'm always looking for, you know, um, I, I guess I would say I, sometimes I serve as a, as a guide or a companion as we, as we kind of explore with this person, what is it that sustains you? What is it that supports you in life? Um, how do you find balance? Um, how do you how do you meet challenges? You know, and everyone's different. So, but the chaplain can kind of serve as a pointer and and help people once they've ex- had an opportunity to really express their their fear and um, their sadness, um, the pain. Um, that they're experiencing. Once they've had a chance to really express that, then they really can begin to think a little more clearly about, well, how am I gonna? How am I gonna meet this? Um, you know, how how do I want to be cared for in this hospital? How far do I want to go? Because, as I mentioned, you know, in the medical community these days, the treatments can go on and on, and every treatment has a benefit and there's suffering involved. And at what point do people, are people um, able to, to, to say, you know, well, the suffering of that treatment is too much now. I, I just, I just want to be, let, let me alone. <laughs> and then we can also 
once that decision has been made, then we can um, then we can meet end of life issues. You know, um, are there any regrets? Um, any connections that have been broken that you would like to reestablish? You know, all kinds of things open up. Um, it's not the end. <laughs> you know, there's 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 stuff to do as you meet um, when you know that you're not going to be here in six months or one month, you know. There's still work to be done if, you, if you're up for it. <laughs> so. Did, did you work with Victor? No, I'm, I, I was away um, during the time. I just returned on um, Ju- July 1. Yeah, I've just returned. So um, I didn't know that Victor... I, I actually... Um, I kind of lost track. I, I didn't know where, where things were with Victor. And so mm-hmm. I just, I heard like all of you after July 4th that he had passed away. So if I had known, I, I would have tried to make a visit. Yeah, because I knew Victor. He was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, and I was told that he had a, a um, you know, time at his home. He had the last time with his, uh, he stayed yeah. at home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, hospice. Hospice, hospice is a is wonderful word, thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a wonderful thing. Um, and just, um, you know, and hospice, it, it it's often comes in at the last last moment for a lot of people. And it's it's actually something um, that can support people for a long time. It just, it it doesn't have to come right at the end, you know. <laughs> Um, if people are willing to um, to really um, um, understand the reality of their situation, then they can get that support earlier, and um, it, it can really um, there's there, there's a lot of um, work that can be done as we meet end of life. Particularly have particularly if we are one of those people who has put off. Um, um, meeting what is in terms of um, our own life and our own inner um, experience and our own connections with others. And, um, you know, people, people let things, let relationships break. And, and then when they have only a day or two left to live, it's a little hard to kind of go, I mean, if it's important, and it often is, to, to reestablish that relationship, it's, it's hard at, at, when it's so late. And often people um, who are near the end aren't always completely with us anyway. They seem to start drifting away. So. I'm curious to know the distinction between what you do and hospice. Okay. Well, um, yeah, I mentioned um, I was a member of the palliative care team, and many people don't understand what palliative care is. They think it's hospice, or it's like, you know, sometimes they're used interchangeably. But palliative care really um, is... A, um, a support system, a consulting, syst- a, a consulting system, a consulting team, a doctor, a nurse, a social worker, a chaplain, for people who are facing um, um, life-threatening uh, chronic illness. And there are a lot of decisions that need to be made about care, and there are a lot of complicated treatments and a lot of things to understand now in terms of medical technology. So the palliative care team can, can help in that um, decision-making process, help support. Um, hospice is actually a part of palliative care, but it, 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 it comes more towards the end. Um, you know, people can um, make use of um, palliative care a support for years if they have an illness that, that has drastically altered their life 
and that um, that they have to cope with huge change, and um, and again that um, all those decisions that need to be made about um, medical treatment. Um, where is this all available? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, many hospitals have um, palliative care teams. Not all, but many. It's, a, it's actually a burgeoning field now because um, the medical community is realizing that the support that comes um, from the, these teams for people experiencing chronic and life-threatening illness, um, actually people uh, do better. <laughs> Obviously they do better <laughs> because they have all this support. Um, and they, are, um, they end up not coming into the ER on a kind of revolving door. They have, um, they have you know, um, care provided um, in the home often. And so it really, from the medical community's um, perspective, they see that um, not only is the, is the quality of care better, but it, it doesn't cost so much because people aren't constantly coming into the ER and um, having you know, the ultimate in um, everything thrown at them, you know, all, all treatments thrown at them because not all treatments are going to be, be- beneficial. So, yeah, in the hospital. And, of course, we have hospice agencies everywhere now. So that's kind of the, that is more towards the um, last stages. So is hospice care, um, does it get involved when a decision is made to no longer seek or use or utilize medical treatment? Um, well, there still is treatment, but the focus changes from, um, you know, from, uh, from trying to cure to making comfortable. Comfort. Yeah, the focus, there's still treatments. And, um, you know, there's still, um, people can still come back to the hospital if they need a treatment that is going to help them be more comfortable. So, yeah. But the focus is no longer on um, curing. So, I see it's 9 o'clock, so um, I, I want to, again, thank you for um, allowing me to share my work and my experiences, and um, um, I'm happy to continue talking um, with anyone who has any other questions. But um, I wish for you all a very safe uh, journey back home. <laughs>